This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is David Suchar. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its third season. In our first two seasons, my good friend Buzz Tarlow produced 25 episodes on a variety of timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, I expect to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we will be talking about the art and science of investigating a complex construction case. So talking about there the tools, activities, and techniques that construction lawyers can use to best build construction cases. And with us today, we have a great guest. So it's Mark Becker of the Fabianski-Westra Hart and Thompson Law Firm here in Minneapolis. Mark is a fellow of the American College of Construction Lawyers. He's an active member in the ABA Forum on Construction Law, and he's past chair of the construction section of the Minnesota State Bar Association. So, Mark, we're glad to have you with us. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Dave. It's uh, truly an honor to be here today, and thanks for uh, inviting me to speak on this important topic. It is my pleasure. Mark, can you tell us about your law practice and experience? Thanks, Dave. I started out as a civil engineering student at Northwestern University, Go Cats. And when I was a junior in engineering school, a Chicago construction lawyer came and spoke to the students about careers in construction law. That sounded good to me. And I went down that path, went to Iowa Law School after finishing my undergrad at Northwestern. And then I started my career at the Schiff Harden and Waite firm in Chicago in 2000. At the time, that was one of the preeminent practices anywhere in the country. And so I was very lucky to be able to learn from a great group of practitioners. And so with my technical background, what I found is that the complex cases involving delays or labor productivity, construction management stuff, architects, engineering errors and emissions, all that kind of stuff. And typically the case had a blend of all of them kind of gravitated towards my desk because I had some technical training. Makes sense. So since that time, you know, I've been with a Fabianski firm since 2006. So my client base includes some top ENR 400 general contractors, some national AE firms, some specialty subs, sureties, and some major public and private owners. And so my practice is somewhat unique in that I represent basically all sectors. That's a great mix of experience, Mark. So I think you are well qualified to talk about this subject matter. Let me start by asking you this. So a lot of the listeners of our podcasts are construction lawyers just starting out in their careers. And quite often in your first few years of practice, as you know, lawyers are assigned to do document review, right? So to look at the documents in the case, kick them up to other people who will work on the case and develop the most important issues. So in terms of investigation, that's maybe a good starting point. What advice would you give to lawyers starting out and doing what we call document review? The first thing I tell my young attorneys is don't use the word document review. 
I don't know what lawyer coined that term, but it's all wrong. That's not what we're doing. That is a misnomer. What we're actually doing is one of the most important parts of the case, and that's investigating. We're analyzing the documents. We're interviewing our client witnesses to find the key evidence that we actually need to advance their interests. And so that, to me, is the most important part of the case and oftentimes the most fun and challenging because if you can find the key documents that help and you get the key witness testimony to help with the case, that's really of value to your clients and to the case and the advocacy that you're performing. Because if you know the facts better than anybody in the case, you really have a lot of power to support your advocacy, you know how to deal with weaknesses in your case, and you understand the strengths of your case as well. I agree with you. I would say the first thing is let's just not call it document review at all. Eliminate that from our billing vocabulary. Call it investigation. That makes sense to me. So in terms of investigation, you get the case file, you win the ability to work on the case. One of the first steps is getting documents from your own client, right? Tell me about your ideas for best practices and how to go about getting documents from your own side. Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. So part of my practice is I do a lot of claimant-sided work. And so the clients have some loss that they feel that they have, and they don't know maybe much about it, but they know enough that they need to hire an attorney. And I'll say, okay, the first step here is I need to look into this a little bit, do an investigation, so I can give you at least a preliminary evaluation and get some budgeting for you so we can determine if there's a claim that looks like it might be worth pursuing and if there might be a return on your investment. This is the first stage is I'll give a request for information to the client for these kind of basic documents. And I actually use the word RFI because most of the clients are in the construction world and they understand an RFI as a request for information. And if you use their terminology to facilitate your investigation as an attorney, they'll understand what you're doing. And so, for example, if I'm evaluating a delay case, well, I'd want the contract, change orders, the schedules, the updates to the schedules. I'd want cost report data if it's a contractor or sub that I'm representing, estimating information, daily reports, monthly reports, and the key correspondence and notices. So kind of basic stuff that you will need to look at to present a case. What about uh, in, a, in a defect case, for example? Yeah, for the defects, there's a couple of things that are critical. Contracts, of course, change orders. Absolutely, the drawings and the specifications. Depending on where the site is, I'll probably want to look at it and probably have an expert with me at that point in time, because if it's a defect, the expert testimony is going to be critical. And if there's photographs, of course, we need to see that. And so what I want to do is before I get onto the site on a defect, I want to have a general understanding of what was supposed to happen after talking with the client so I can provide some context to my own visual observation and to be able to communicate with the client. Over time and experience in dealing with construction defect case, you kind of have a sense for what you might look for. I would say a lot of them involve leaks or cracks of some sort, whether it's the concrete or masonry or steel, whatever it might be. So there's some common threads in all of these things. But, you know, that basic stuff, responses to requests for information, submittal, things of that nature. So it sounds like the idea is to get in enough information on the front end so that you become a bit of an expert on the subject matter, and then you use that to decide what's the best path forward, how to save the client resources and not going into areas you don't need to get into and trying to focus on the best 
way to get to the solution. Is that? Oh, is that's that- right. Exactly. And so the more you can learn quickly up front, that helps you kind of steer the strategy and what is the path to resolution and how do we communicate the information to the other side and what's the value of our claim? So oftentimes damages are kind of deferred to the end or not emphasized. But if it's on the defect side, you need to understand how to repair it and get a repair estimate as soon as possible because that's the critical information. And on the delay type of a claim, to be able to at least do an intelligent total cost check to know what the maximum you could possibly claim would be. Unless I'm missing something, I've never heard of anybody getting more than a total cost claim. Right. But you could say, oh, well, we're not going to get more than that. Probably be less. But anyway, that at least provides some framework for at least estimating in a rough basis what the potential claim might be. Learning that as soon as you can provides context and gives you the answer to the client's question. Do I have a case that's worth pursuing? Right. And that's if you're a plan. If you're a defendant, you kind of have to roll with it. It's not always your clock. Someone else is putting the clock on you, so you have to kind of be reactive. But if you're in the driver's seat as a plaintiff, you want that information up front, develop it if you have time, of course, and then be able to present it to the people that you are expecting to pay. And the sooner you can provide the best information possible to the other side, the sooner they can make their decision. Right. Have you found that the types of investigation you're doing, is it surprising to clients to look into certain areas that you suggest them to look into? It's always surprising to the client that the legal process requires scrutiny of their records. Unless they're very experienced litigants. And some of my clients are very experienced, so they get it. But by and large, if you have entities or at least groups of people that you're working with within an entity that haven't gone through a litigation process, they're almost always surprised at the level of review that's involved. And so the sooner you can kind of get over that and get through it, to me, is better because it also gives them reasonable expectation of what's going to be required as part of a dispute resolution process. And to say, well, right. we, we can kind of drag it out as the case goes along, and it'll be more disruptive of your time, or we can do the ground up work as soon as possible so it's ready, and then it's kind of just refreshing yourself as you go along instead of constantly relearning it. Yeah, so, yeah I don't know. What's your experience on that one? Yeah, I, you know, in the insurance coverage for construction context, I work in that area a lot. We're asking for things that clients, I think, might expect. So the policies, the correspondence with the insurers. But quite often, we have to investigate something that wasn't built up in the underlying case. So you might have an underlying case about how panels are defective. But the insurance investigation involves how the panels broke away from the substrate, right? Because you're trying to develop a third-party property type theory. Sometimes it's a totally new method of investigation for a new area. And I think sometimes that's a bit surprising to clients, but I think it's important to get that information to develop the best possible theory for coverage. So I appreciate your approach to looking into facts, sometimes facts that haven't been uncovered before uh, within the project, for example. Exactly. We talked a bit about written discovery and how to best use written discovery to the other side to get what you want and to third parties as well. That's probably an area that is underutilized, I think, in most civil litigation, probably in construction law as well. So maybe let's talk a bit about written discovery. How do you go about investigating through the written discovery process to best get what you want? I find that if you get targeted specific requests, that you're more likely to get what you want as opposed to just give me your project file. Of course, everybody says, give me your project file. If you could say on the specific interrogatories, on what day did you provide notice of your claim? 
you, know, right. you might have an expectation of what that is based on the obvious correspondence. And if they say that, okay, you've confirmed that. But if that's late, maybe they'll come up with something else. And so that's where you learn. But the more specific you can be, the better. As an example, I just had a case involving property damage claim that resulted from some unexpected winds on a construction project. And so there was a theory that the wind was recurring. And so the question is like, well, what mile an hour did this happen on the wind? Give me the number. And they say, well, between X and Y. So once they give me that, then I can go back to the weather records and work with our experts say, okay, how many times did that happen? It's like, well, it didn't happen. Okay, good. Uh, So the more specific quantitative questions you can ask, I think the better. And the more likely they're going to answer it, and the less likely they're going to get an objection because, you know, there's nothing wrong with the question and they have to answer it. Right. They can't say it's overbroad. They can't say that it's asking for too much information. Right. Exactly. So I would do that. And then document production requests, you know, instead of like all documents that refer or relate to damages, I would say you should know what documents that you need for damages on a delay claim. And so I want to see your cost report, final updated with all complete detail, sorted by each cost code in date order, that would be one. And then I want your internal estimating worksheets that tell me how many man hours you expected for masonry labor to that level of detail. That's what I would do instead of just say all documents related to damages. So the more precise you can be with your request, again, the more likely it is that they have to answer it. They won't object to it. And if you're ever in front of a judge to say, hey, I didn't get an answer to this question, the judge will say, yeah, why didn't she answer it? Fair question. We talked about written discovery, Mark. When we come back from the break, I'd like to ask you about a few other things. So third-party discovery, some of the techniques that you use to develop and divide and build up the best information, and then some of the other discovery tactics that you use and best practices for those. So we'll be right back with more of the podcast. PMA Consultants is a leading provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. Our experts have a wealth of experience in identifying, analyzing, preparing, and presenting claims and disputes on construction and engineering projects. PMA is proud to be a longtime supporter of the ABA Construction Law Forum and its members. Connect with our construction claims experts on our website, pmaconsultants.com. Welcome back to the podcast. So, Mark, when we broke, we were talking about different forms of discovery and mentioned that we'd start talking about third-party discovery. So I know that's something that you and I have discussed as a way to investigate construction cases and claims. Tell us about some thoughts on using subpoenas, for example, to get and investigate the information you need to build a good construction case. What I would say is that subpoenas are really an underutilized tool. In my experience, there are certain subpoenas that will be responded to very quickly by certain parties. And so a common type of dispute that we have in construction cases, there's payment issues like, well, what what did payment have? Oftentimes this happens on private jobs, not so much on public, but on private jobs. And often there's like a construction lender. And so one way to get really good information very quickly is to subpoena the construction lender and the mezzanine lender, if there's one of those, second tier lender, whatever. 
they'll respond. Banks are very good about subpoena compliance, and they'll respond quickly and usually quite thoroughly. Title companies would as well. Another one that is a good value for money is if you have a dispute between a sub and a general about some aspect of the work that was inspected by an architect or an inspecting engineer. If you issue a subpoena to the architect or inspecting engineer for their inspection reports, you're going to get them very quickly and without a lot of fuss. And so I would say look for those opportunities to get uh, good information as quickly as possible, particularly if you have an adversarial relationship with the other side and they're not really giving a lot of information. Shortcut it. Just go to the third party and you'll get what you need. What about the parties that you've dealt with in the past? Are there some that are typically are notoriously bad at complying with subpoenas? Yeah, for sure. Like uh, subcontractors generally are terrible at complying with subpoenas either because they're too busy or like, don't bother me with this, or they think that they're somehow going to be dragged into a dispute. And sometimes they are, but many times they're not. If you need to allow for that investigation as part of your schedule, issue it and just plan for that to be a little bit difficult on the compliance end. You have to follow up to, to get that information. Another area that we've discussed in terms of third party discovery are use of FOIA or data practices or similar requests. Can you describe how you've used those requests to your advantage in the past? Absolutely. So if you have a project and it involves a public entity of some sort, and let's say you have a dispute between a sub and the general over design changes or the quality of the design, if you issue a Data Practices Act request or Freedom of Information, depending on where you are, to the public owner for their design development phase documents, you're going to find a lot of good information about how that design that you're bidding came to be and whether there's discussions about whether to shortcut the the design piece for it, or you might see correspondence from the design professional saying, well, we understand that you have to meet your bidding deadline. And so we'll just deal with uh, design issues by bulletin or changes after we issue it. If you see that and you have a big, you know, it's change order impact case, well, well, geez, well, that's good information. Very much so. Yeah. So you can find stuff like that. What about once you get in the records from the other side, you have your clients' records, you get them from third parties. Can you tell me about some techniques that you've used to either organize or develop or make the information that you get more intelligible for use in a case? Yeah, I call it doing studies. I use that loosely, but the attorneys that work with me at the firm, they go, oh, we got to do another study first. <laughs> and so what it is, is I analyze common records for fact patterns. And so if you have a delay case involving excavation equipment, you get the daily reports and then you say, well, there was 100 days of work. And of those 30 days of those had equipment breakdowns. And so you just create a chart where you have the date and then you analyze the information in the daily reports and then that allows you to quantitatively identify uh, trends. One example that I have was I had a claim uh, for an owner against an engineer on a, a very significant project and we weren't clear who the major witnesses were on the case. And so it was a reimbursable compensation system and so we had invoices that had names and hours worked, but really very little else. And so what I did is I just said, okay, let's create a study. Let's take all the invoices and list what engineers were working and we'll identify like who were the major billers. And and what we found is that there was one period of time where there was a lot of work in a major discipline and then that worker stopped 
And then a new worker came in and worked a lot of heavy hours about two weeks later. And so I was like, well, that's an interesting trend. I have a hunch as part of my investigation that just based on that information alone, maybe they changed out a key person. And that maybe that change out of the key person and the lag for that new person to come in could have been a contributor to the delay. What do you yeah. do as a result? So then we go, okay, we think that this happened. Let's dig in. Let's find email in the records for this particular person before and after and see if there's any discussion about what might have happened in terms of a transition. And, and we were able to verify that that was one of the contributing factors based on the additional supplemental discovery. But since there really wasn't any communications that the owner had, we had to kind of use these analytical tools to be able to discern kind of what that possibility was and then bear it out in some key questions. So that's an example of what you can do. If nothing else, I would have found out, well, who built the most hours on the job to be able to figure out who might learn, you know, know the most. But sometimes you get nuggets like that where you see a trend and a possible explanation in addition to it, just by rigorously analyzing the data like that. Yeah, that makes sense. We've also talked about software, for example, the software systems that parties use to keep their records, keep emails, keep data. How have you used investigative techniques regarding software to develop important items and cases? This is really kind of a, a good topic. Everybody should know about it. We're so used to just looking at emails and Word documents, but in the construction industry, design professionals use design files, Revit, Reddit, Rev, I'm sorry, Revit, BIM technologies, contractors use scheduling software, and typically the contractors and subs will have their own accounting software. And so if you can understand what software they use to run the various aspects of their business, that's very important. I had a case where it was a labor productivity case. And so those in the audience will know that the best way to prove that is a measured mile analysis if they don't have any direct cost coding. And the worst is you know, a total cost, but even then you still need some basic records. And so the contractor said, well, they didn't have any estimating records. They said they couldn't do a measured mile. What I learned is that they had a very specific software that they used to run their accounting and estimating. And uh, once you know that, you can go online and discern the features of the software. And there's usually a local rep. And oftentimes those reps meet with the contractor to explain the capabilities. And so in the course of this, I learned that not only was the software capable of track cost coding, labor productivity to be able to do a measured mile, but that the software people actually trained the contractor how to do it. And so once we learned that, we could say that, look, the reason you can't prove your claim is not because you couldn't, it's because you didn't. And shortly thereafter, we were able to resolve the case. That's impressive, Mark. That's some good sleuthing there. Are you worried that people will use these techniques against you? People well, will get into your client's software. I suppose that they could ask. But I think what I found is that a lot of lawyers, and this is but kind of goes back to my first comment, it's the fun part of the job to do the investigation. I agree. It's not just reading cases and applying facts that are given to you. You have to actually go out and search and find those facts that might be relevant. No, I, I completely agree yeah. with you, Mark. It is the fun part for me, too. And I'm often surprised by how many lawyers don't do any of these things, really don't try to categorize records or create a new system to try to develop the best arguments you can make in your case by having the best facts at your disposal. That's right. And it's a skill. What I would tell people, 
construction cases are very complicated. A lot of details, a lot of parties and names and try to keep it all straight is very challenging. So I would encourage people to practice their mind by reading a lot of complicated nonfiction or fiction. So if you can train your mind to keep a lot of facts in your brain, that's a good way to justify reading a complicated story. Yeah, back to the document issues that we talked about at the beginning. Do you find that abstracting, taking records and finding what's important about them and documenting that is a better process than just issue coding or focusing on particular issues that you're already aware of in a case? Right. And so some of us are familiar with large documents. You might have a 100,000 to a million records that are loaded onto a document review platform like Relativity or something like that. And so it's a daunting challenge to kind of keep it all straight, but you can do searches and then to kind of isolate what you're looking for, look for the key people, maybe after you figure out who worked the most. But then once you start getting into analyzing it, what I like to do is issue coding really forces a result onto the document. I think you need to let the document speak to you, tell you what they say, as opposed to trying to force a theory onto them. And so what I like to do is abstract take separate notes in a kind of chronological order, and you can read them out of order as long as you're, you're mentally in your abstract, keep everything chronological, and then you can also sort that. But I find that if you abstract it, you learn the documents better, and you can use your abstract for multiple purposes, such as preparing a deposition outline, preparing a mediation brief, preparing a summary judgment motion. You can get a lot of bang for your buck without having a lot of rework and, you know, trying to go back into a relativity program or something to kind of retrace what you've already done. You can also have whatever review notes you take imported into the relativity system. You can work with your team to do that. So other people who work that way can use it. I find that having abstracts are a lot easier to use than just issue coding. I think the issue codes just put blinders and people miss stuff that might be important. What about the tension with regard to depositions in construction cases between trying to scour the earth with lots of depositions versus just taking a few targeted depositions? Do you have any insight on how to use depositions effectively as an investigative tool? I think the best, at least what I've found in my practice, I like to use them sparingly and usually for a couple of purposes. One, with the trend towards earlier resolution and mediations, you should really have a good idea of what the facts of your case are. And oftentimes what you learn is maybe your opposing counsel isn't quite up to speed yet. And so you can use the deposition for two purposes. One, to confirm your understanding of what the factual information is based on your review of the facts. And a lot of that is confirming interpretation of records. But at the same time, you're showing the other side what the key documents are in case they haven't appreciated them yet. Yep. And that's really important that way. But in terms of just having the depositions for the sake of them, I would not do that, it's too expensive. It's rare in a construction case, there's a dispute over whether the light was red or green. Yep, that makes sense. Well, one final question, Mark, and that's asking you to put on your cap, your crystal ball, maybe to predict the future of construction case investigation. What are you seeing more of? What do you think we'll see more of in the future in investigating complex construction cases? My view is that the clients are demanding earlier and more efficient resolutions. And so I think that the legal profession needs to adapt their investigation tools to be able to provide answers more quickly. 
and more and more cases are being resolved through an early mediation process, either right after a case was sued out or even beforehand, before there's going to be depositions and maybe even before there's formal written discovery. But what I find is that if people do voluntary information exchange and just ask on what is most important for targeted, most of the time that's all they ever need and that they can analyze that and drive to see if they can learn enough about the case to make an intelligent settlement case as soon as possible. So I think that's where the trend is. You start with the kind of a voluntary exchange process. And that accelerates, if you're the plaintiff, accelerates the test that your claim will be subjected to by the defendants. And so you'd rather learn if there's some fatal defect to your claim, you want to learn that as soon as possible. So you don't spend any more of your client's money on it. And if you're the defendant, you also want the plaintiff to know if there's a fatal defect as soon as possible. So your client doesn't have to get dragged through the court. So I think that's where the trend is. And I think a voluntary information exchange is where things are going to trend. So a claimant who has a claim for a schedule or timing adjustment, they should just be prepared to provide their baseline information as soon as possible, as soon as it's requested by the recipient of the claim. And if you're evaluating a claim, you know, ask the questions, issue an RFI, say, we'd like to evaluate your claim. These are the documents that we would see. They're going to get them anyway, so there's no point in deferring it or delaying. Right. Mark, this has been a great practical discussion of things that can be done to investigate complex construction cases. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me on and appreciate the time and the topic. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about construction law today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, David Suchar, at david.suchar at maslin.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today. Today.